Some of these Old Testament passages of Scripture may seem very strange to our ears. But when we pause to consider them, with the Lord's help we discover that things today are not so very different after all. And we also discover that the message that the world needs today is not so very different after all. It can often seem that these Old Testament books and stories are a million miles away from us in just about every sense. But apart from feeling that they were an awfully long time ago, if you pause to grasp the big lessons, the main themes that these books contain, you'll soon discover that the troubles of Israel are the troubles of the world today. And the God before whom Israel stood guilty is the same God before whom men and women stand guilty today. And the penalty that God brings against sin today is the same as it was then. Because God hasn't changed. The fact that God for a time permits the world to continue in its sin isn't an indication that things have changed. God actually was slow to anger with the nation of Israel. He, he is very forbearing. He, he didn't just immediately jump straight in in his wrath with Israel. He sent his prophets again and again to remind them, to warn them, calling them to repentance, giving them time and opportunity to repent. Again and again God did it. Listen to these words that we'll come to much later in this book. This is in chapter 33 of Ezekiel at verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's God's heart towards Israel. That's God's heart towards everyone today. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God is gracious and kind. And God desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. So we're taking this tour through the book of Ezekiel on Sunday evenings. Not to look at it in minute detail. But to understand the main lessons and to pause here and there. To consider the eternal truths and principles that are revealed here. In this portion of God's word. So we're going to look at these little sections, chapters 6 through 9. So have your Bible open, first of all, at Ezekiel chapter 6. And we see that one of the big problems in Israel was idolatry. Idolatry. And part of this message of judgment that comes against Israel is that God is going to tear down their idols 
and their altars where they've been worshipping false gods. On the mountaintops of Israel, the literal mountaintops in Israel, could be found pagan shrines. Uh, Many of them were already there, uh, used by the pagan nations that were in that part of the world before uh, God moved his people into the land of Canaan. But those pagan shrines were being used by the Lord's people. Men and women with Jewish blood in their veins, worshipping false gods on the mountaintops. And their allegiance to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was, for many of them, in name only. And for many of them, there was certainly no love for God in their heart. Now, if you'd asked them, what religion are you? They undoubtedly would have replied, of the Hebrews, of the household of Israel. And yet there was much in their lives that placed huge question marks against that claim as they assimilated themselves amongst the pagan nations in disobedience to what God had told them. And in turning to idolatry, they were denying that the God of Israel is the one true God. Instead of worshipping only God, instead of trusting only God, they've decided that it's acceptable to give to other things that which belongs to God alone. That's at the heart of idolatry. Religious worship now for them, rather than being about giving to God that which is due to him, has become a means of trying to get from worship what I want from it. Pagan worship is all about, if I do this for this God, then maybe he can be persuaded to do that for me and so the focus is on me and it's what I get from it that's the important part exalting me instead of exalting God the danger for us in 2019 is that we too bring those mountaintops into the church more of a danger than we realise. The danger that worship becomes not about giving God what he is due, but about what worship does for me. We're surrounded by idolatry today. Everywhere you look, men and women are giving to other things that which belongs to God alone. And in the book of Ezekiel, we find out very, very clearly what God thinks of idolatry. And men and women worship other things, from football teams to this thing called celebrity, to the lottery, 
to the car they drive, to the home they own, to how they look, to where they're going on holiday this year. And on and on the list goes. These are the things which take up their time. These are the things that take up their thoughts. These are the things that take up their devotion and their energy and their money and their affections. And God is nowhere. It is idolatry. Because these are the things that they're trusting in. These are the things that they're hoping in to give them a happy and satisfying life. It's all about exalting me, making me look good, making me feel good. And yet, of course, interestingly, when disaster strikes, their own conscience does tell them that there is the one true God out there somewhere to whom I ought to turn or blame. But they're so far removed from him that he will not listen unless, unless their cry to him flows out of true repentance. The anger of God against idolatry is laid bare in chapter 6 as is the severity of God's judgment against his people. In verse 11, idolatry and all that's gone on amongst the Lord's people is described there as evil abominations. You, you can't really say it any stronger than that in the English language. It, it is as bad as it gets as far as God is concerned. Friends, we need to be so careful it's very easy to be or to become Christian in name only. It's very easy to, to say that you worship only God. And yet God looks down on you and watches you worshipping so many other things. Things which occupy far more of your thought life and your time than you ever give him. Things that you dwell upon far more than you dwell upon him. Things that you spend time with far more than the time that you give to pray or to read your Bible. Things that you get excited about and animated over but you don't about him. For some Christians, there can be things that they'll find time for much more readily than they can find time to get to church on Sunday or to the prayer meeting. I'm just too busy. But for this thing, when the opportunity is presented, they're suddenly available. And for this thing, suddenly they can find the time. So, so it affects us all in so many different ways. And we have to be so very careful. You see, it isn't just Israel who erected shrines on the mountaintops. We can do it all too easily. 
don't be a Titus 1.16 Christian. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, there's that word again, disobedient and disqualified for every good work, which is actually not to be a Christian at all. It's just an outward form, but there's no inward reality whatsoever. Now, I'm not standing here trying to be a complete killjoy, you know. I'm not suggesting that you can't have interests, you can't have hobbies, you can't have leisure time, you can't enjoy sport. But it's when the place that is being given to those things takes away from the things that belong to God. That's the issue. Does what you give to those things take away from that which belongs to God? That's when your problems are beginning. And God moves against those who are caught up in idolatry. And what we see in that chapter is that everything they've lived for, all that they've accumulated, everything that they've loved is taken from them and comes to nothing. Because that's where idolatry leads. So heed the warning and counsel of the scripture. In chapter 7, those passages that we read, we discover in those verses God's perfect justice. God's perfect justice. Now, when God talks about judgment in the Bible, people don't just get caught up in judgment in a general or an arbitrary way. God's judgment is personal. God's judgment is specific and it is perfect retribution for your sins. I will send my anger against you, chapter 7, verse 3. I will judge you according to your ways. When God moves in judgment, it is precisely what your sins deserve precisely no more no less such is the perfect and holy justice of God there will be no appeals process because none will be necessary because he will have his judgment right first time because he's holy and he's just and he's true and again and again, the Bible speaks about God in these words and in these terms. And no one will escape God's justice. The phrase at the beginning of chapter 7, the four corners of the land, that's like saying the four points of the compass. In other words, the whole of the land without exception. There'll be no little group over here who God forgets or overlooks. His eyes will see all. 
and every single sin will be accounted for and paid for. If you have a look at verse in chapter 7, verse 3 and verse 8, they have the same words in them. I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. Said twice. And then you've got verses 4 and 9 with more repetition. I will repay your ways. Your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that it is God who's doing these things. And you see, this is exactly the same as we read in the New Testament. There's no difference at all uh, here in what Paul says. If you have a look at um, Romans chapter 2, the the beginning of Romans 2, Paul says here, Therefore you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. In the day of wrath, verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. This is exactly the same language as Ezekiel. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. This is New Testament doctrine, exactly the same as Old Testament doctrine. No one escapes. And God judges perfectly each one according to their deeds. And we have in these verses and in these chapters this picture of men and women as the horror of God's judgment falls and as they realize the complete futility of all that they've been holding on to and counting as dear look in chapter 7 at verses 16 and a few that follow those who survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valleys all of them mourning each for his iniquity every hand will be feeble Every knee will be as weak as water. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on their face. Baldness on all their heads. That's a sign of great contrition, shaving the head. They will throw their silver into the streets. Their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them. In the day of the wrath of the Lord, they will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs. It's an awful picture as God moves against his people in his perfect justice. That's where idolatry gets you. When all that rightly belongs to God is spent on other things, what you have left at the end is nothing. So when we think in terms like this about God's justice we have to realize something very special and very specific about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've just been remembering together and here it is when Christ died on the cross his death was not some arbitrary punishment that God just came up with 
Christ's death on the cross was not merely symbolic of what we deserve. Isaiah 53 verse 6 tells us that God laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. In his hymn, In Christ Alone, Stuart Townend has it absolutely correct where he says, every sin on him was laid. For each soul for whom Christ died at Calvary, every sin has been gathered in. Every single one. Into the basket they go. All of your sins. Nothing misses God's eye. Nothing misses God's ear. Every sin goes in. And all of them laid on Christ. And the due penalty for every single sin was paid by him for you. Isn't that wonderful? And God's perfect justice is satisfied in Christ. That's the salvation that is held out to you in the Bible, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know with certainty that the guilt and the condemnation is gone, as is the debt that you owe, because it's all fallen on Christ. And God has dealt with it in Christ, in your place. Or you may choose to reject Christ, but one day you'll find that you are in a day of reckoning and not one of your sins will be overlooked and every single one of them God will ask you to repay for all eternity. God's justice will be perfect and full and final on that day for those who are outside of Christ. But for those who are in Christ, God's justice has already been perfect and full and final at Calvary. And in chapter 8, we're reminded of something very important. There's no place to hide. There's no hiding in the dark. The picture moves. It's 14 months later. And Ezekiel, first of all, sees again a vision of God, very, very similar language as to what we saw in the opening chapter. And I want to draw your attention to verse 12. The vision moves into the temple court. And what does he see right at the centre? He sees the elders of the house of Israel. Do you see what they do in the dark, Ezekiel? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us here. What men do in the dark that they think no one sees. 
we think God does not see because God apparently is not there. This way of thinking is rife in the world today. It lies at the heart of many of the iniquities that are overtaking our own society. What I do in my life, in my space, behind my closed door, is no concern of yours. And even if God does exist, if I'm not harming anyone else, what does it matter? And where they think they're hiding in the darkness. God is there. And of course, if enough people believe like that and speak like that, then slowly but surely, actually what you discover is that those sins come out of those dark places and into the public space, into the glare of daylight. And that's what's happening in our country today. Those things, those things that once were only done in darkness, in the secret place, behind closed doors, are now being pushed right in our faces and even being legislated in their favour. But largely sin is something seen as done in the dark. You see, it's who you are in private, who you are when you're on your own, that often reveals the truth about you. And God knows you. Because you think, because no one sees it, you think you get away with it. It doesn't affect anyone else, so it's really quite a trivial thing. But there is one who knows and there is one who sees it's our natural disposition to think that sin is not as bad as it really is. Some of those things that we looked at at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning probably fall into that bracket. We're just not convinced that they're as serious as they really are. Things like whispering, gossip, conceit. We tend to excuse ourselves because we think that they are very trivial things. But God doesn't. Look at verse 17 of chapter 8. Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? Is it a trivial thing? Is it? God doesn't think so. God knows we have a tendency to trivialize sin, but he never will. And so many are in for a great shock when they're confronted with the reality of God's estimation of sin. And it dawns upon them that God has been provoked to anger. Sin. There's no hiding in the dark. And it's always more serious than you think. And then finally, chapter 9. There's a glimmer of hope again. Because there is salvation. Whenever God is moving in judgment, you will always find evidences of his grace. That's the good news of the Bible. One aspect of God's grace is the time and opportunity that he provides for people to repent. An even more wonderful feature of his grace is that God provides a means of escape and saves people out of that judgment. Now we've had eight chapters of unrelenting doom regarding the fate of rebellious Israel. And yet here in chapter 9, there is hope. There are some, verse 4, who sigh. That's speaking of a deep-seated inner groaning of the soul, which is accompanied by verbal cries. 
in the midst of such widespread sin and abomination, in the midst of a nation in open rebellion against God, those cries rise up to God and he doesn't miss them. He hears them. In the midst of all of this, you might think, well, God could be forgiven for just overlooking these few. In the midst of all of this mess, but he doesn't. He hears them. He sees them. He knows their heart. He hears their sighing. He hears their crying. And they're marked out. And we see that these instructions that are given for these who are to go through the city in this vision and the slaughter that is to take place. Not even the children are to be spared. Such is God's judgment of sin. But there are some in the city who are no longer under condemnation and they will be spared. You will not touch them. And as the mark of the blood on the door frames saved all of Israel from the death of the firstborn in Egypt, the marks on their forehead will save these few in Israel. And it's interesting to note, by the way, the judgment begins at the sanctuary with the elders. The elders in the temple should have known better than anyone in Israel. The elders in the temple should have been those who took hold of the people and led them back to God in repentance, but they haven't. They're the ones, actually, who've been hiding in the dark more than anyone, it turns out. And just as we read about church elders in the New Testament, the judgment starts there. They receive the stricter judgment. See, these principles hold firm through the scriptures. God doesn't change. But there's grace and mercy for those who sorrow and repent over sin. That's the good news of the Bible. Every sin was laid on Christ as we remembered around the table earlier. earlier. The means of salvation has been secured. The sinner's debt is paid in full. We're still in a day of grace. And so the preacher still points to Christ, the one who died for your sins, according to the scriptures. And the cry still goes out today. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And in Christ you can turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die when you can have Christ? Christ.